Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And this, oh wow, this intro was so epic. It is, really. I, uh, I feel like I should have armor on. You, sh- you should. <laughs> Maybe you could armor up right now. This is our Church of Thrones, Game of Thrones episode. Yes, and uh, it's interesting. We actually, when we first began, did uh, did an episode on this, but it is the lost episode, and we we don't know where it is. It is. We have like like prints. We have several. We had a vault of unreleased episodes, <laughs> which we were recording on like an iPhone or something, and it sounded terrible. And this is one that we actually did not. I don't know how we lost it. But. Well, you know, it's, it might be, although we thought it was good content. What's interesting is I was talking about the Game of Thrones last summer, having never watched any of the episodes. And I, I, I confess that. But since then, uh, I've been watched. And for me, that's totally out of character. And I was able to get up to speed. And so I am now watching the episodes in real time. I like that. I am going back through it for the second time in my spare time when I'm, you know, doing mindless projects that I can have like background noise. So maybe we should say this up front. All right. If I do not watch Game of Thrones, should I just turn off this podcast right now or should I hang in there? I think it would actually, yeah, I think it could persuade you possibly to get into it. Yeah, and even if you're not interested, and you know, I'm not a big fantasy reader or watcher, but uh, it's so well written, it's so well acted, and it does touch on some really interesting and great themes that I think um, have application, not only for just enjoying watching something, but you know, make me think about other areas as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Doug Wilson from Idaho, who is a kind of very controversial conservative evangelical pastor actually came out with a he wrote something the other day about game of thrones and said it was pedestrian so uh. actually that uh I, I actually i don't think i really agreed with his critique but his critique was that if you read the worlds of tolkien and lewis that these things were so deep seated in their imaginations that the worlds they they didn't just sort of sit down at a typewriter and bang out a world but it came out of their study of the ancient world and of literature. And I mean, it's interesting though, because Tolkien actually imagined Lord of the Rings as the Genesis 1 through 11 ancient primeval epic of Europe. Because, you know, the the absence of something like that, historically, he's trying to kind of recreate, you know, create it. Um, So I don't know. I actually think that George Martin's world is pretty imaginative and interesting. I mean, Wilson saw it as very arbitrary. Yeah, but that's, in some levels, that would be the worldview of, certainly it was the worldview of ancient Rome. I mean, where your two most popular gods, say in the second century of the Common Era, were fate and fortune. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting. They're contradictory. But one, you know, the bottom line is one way or the other, you're going to get it. And that's sort of part of what happens in the Game of Thrones. Yeah, that is, uh, in fact, I was just reading something that said that uh, this is uh, from Scott R. Paith, who I've never heard of, but he teaches Christian social ethics at DePaul University in Chicago, not to be confused with DePaul University, where Dan Quayle went and was an excellent member of the golf team. I yeah, nice. But this is DePaul. 
He says, thus far, Martin has been fairly scornful of the idea that the end result of the political struggle is the establishment of social justice and seems to be suggesting that in the end, all succumbs to dust and entropy or that on the whole, those willing to give themselves wholly over to their will to power will ultimately prevail. Well, uh, might is right. I mean, that is not a new idea. And one would argue that at least in the short term, history supports that um, you can you can rule the world for a little while if if you know your chief aim is power and you um, keep your eye on that prize. Once again, this is one of our more optimistic podcasts <laughs> brought to you by Alcoa. Well, but uh, yeah, but I mean, okay, let's take somebody like, for instance, you can say Napoleon's success and failure helped shaped, you know, shape modern Europe. Certainly, Alexander the Great's success uh, left a legacy that certainly influenced uh, the foundations of Christianity. So, uh, uh, it's it's yeah. There's a lot of terrible things that happen in in the short run, but in some levels, it's almost like the way the the plates shift in the earth and the horrendous things that happen with volcanoes and earthquakes and tsunamis. But that's part of the way the earth renews itself. So, from a kind of a naturalist perspective, uh, the rise and fall of empires is part of how society. You know, it's not a, it's not moving forward, but it's part of how it recycles itself. What did uh, Thomas Jefferson say? That the tree of liberty must be refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Yeah, yeah. From time to time. And I think what's also, uh, what I like about... I'm surprised that's not on a greeting card. (laughs) (laughs) Or a t-shirt. Or a t-shirt, yeah. Maybe, you know, that might be, you know, we ought to do, that would be funny. We could maybe set up, make those t-shirts, screen those t-shirts, and then hang out at the Republican convention. You lost me at screening T-shirts. That sounds like a lot of work. Like, well, it's funny. I just did a funeral of a person who screened. It's on my mind, but he screened his uh, Christmas card every year by hand. So that seemed like an awful lot of work. But that was in a different age, a different day. We can do it much quicker now, technologically. It seems like somebody that is a regular attender of Star Trek conventions would be more <laughs> socially adjusted than somebody that screened their own Christmas cards no, that's, that's, every year. But yeah. So you, this what's interesting is that if it's funny that like Sunday night has become the night for television, like especially in cable, but some network things too. I mean, The Good Wife, which just ended its five season run with a really interesting conclusion, confusing a little bit, but interesting. And uh, Madam President, I mean, there's just so many, or Madam Secretary, rather. Uh, Sunday night football. Sunday him. night football. Uh, you know, Game of Thrones is is one among many. Like it seemed like every big serial drama is on Sunday yeah, night. It does seem like Showtime and HBO both use that as kind of their their premiere night. Yeah, and AMC or uh, which Walking Dead is on AMC or TN AMC AMC I think. So it's interesting that like that's become the like center of the civil liturgical life, like people. The water cooler, if there are still water coolers in offices, I mean, maybe the espresso, the, the Keurig has become, has replaced the water cooler. People kind of, <laughs> right. kind of right. get, but the conversations seem to be around 
television and not around the sitcom or thing. It, it's what seems to be driving the entertainment industry is serial dramas like Game of Thrones. And or uh, reality TV. You know, I heard a really interesting discussion uh, last week on Morning Joe, com- you know, comparing social elites, whoever they are, and versus the pe- kind of people who are supporting Donald Trump. And whereas I think you and I, we're not economically social elites, but we're probably intellectually kind of identify with that crowd. You know, we, you know, binge watch, we have our, we watch our cable, our shows on cable, our favorite ones, our Netflix, but uh, millions of Americans uh, watch reality TV. And that's part of the reason uh, they're comfortable, for instance, with Donald Trump, because he's been coming into their living room for, you know, over a decade. But if we're in the golden age of like serial dramas, we're in the sort of dark ages of reality TV. Yeah, I, I think maybe that's a redundancy, to be honest with you. Survivor was great. The first couple seasons of Survivor were like, that was the water cooler show. I thought that show was very intriguing. Well, it was the, kind of the first. Cupcake Wars is, I'll tell you, the people that produce. <laughs> Wait a minute, Cupcake Wars? Yeah, I'll tell you what, the people that produced that show, I've watched it like twice with other people who are into it. And I realized like the people that produce that are the most talented producers and television because this is completely uninteresting it's people in a contest over who can make the best cupcakes and they dramatize in the competition i'm like this is like what does it take to produce anthony bourdain nothing no talent the guy's infinitely interesting he's going to infinitely interesting places right if you can hold my attention for four minutes on cupcake wars you should get the keys to pixar or whatever because you you have real (laughs) producing talent i mean that's that is to me is remarkable but you, yeah, you alluded to the fact that we've created kind of a Sunday night has become a different kind of ritual. I can still remember as a kid that uh, the last days of the Sunday night service were, were still going on back in the northern edge of the Bible Belt where I, I grew up. Uh, now there, I'm, I'm sure there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who still are in church on Sunday night. But uh, even like many of the traditional churches that, you know, kind of, uh, I, I, I remember hearing a sermon as a kid where the signs of apostasy had something to do with the fact that you no longer had a Sunday night service or a Wednesday night prayer meeting, that if you failed to do that, you were no longer Christian. And uh, gosh, we've come a long way from that world. Yeah, I mean, the, some people would call that the good old days. <laughs> That's right, the good bad days. You know, it's funny, one of the reasons I, be, I, I have to admit, one of the reasons I became a mainline um, uh, person was that you know I got my Sunday evenings off. So <laughs> there you go. I mean that's I mean deeper words were never spoken. Yeah, this I know. Is I, true. I, 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 vocation. I know. I thought it was some sort of great ideological conversion, but I think it was just uh, I was done going to church on Sunday night. So should a Christian watch Game of Thrones? Is this something that is like? But this, you see this written about uh, every now and again, especially like when you know the season premiere will come out like because you know it a lot of the claims are the the sort of knee-jerk claim is look this is gratuitous nudity sex violence uh of an almost pornographic level that you know this is just sullying our cultural imagination and moral intuitions yeah you know i i would say that's i do think there's excessive um violence and and there have been, it seems less so in the later uh, seasons, but there, I, I think there was, it's kind of like when you see a movie 
they find a reason to go to a strip joint, you know, a strip club. You know, it's kind of like, all right, you whatever, you know, it doesn't matter what the movie is. There's a scene in a strip club so that we can somehow, you know, say, oh, here's some nudity for you. But you think Captain America and Iron Man are going to work out their issues in this blockbuster in a strip club? Uh, <laughs> all right. Not every movie, but many movies, you know, you, you, yeah. know, you know, the genre. But, um, well, I, I think that's always should a Christian, uh, you know, presupposes that there is a, there's a Christian standard that kind of uniformly applies to literature or art or things like that. Uh, I, I think that um, personally, you know, uh, I approach this as I approach anything cultural, and uh, and this is, you know, it's it's entertainment, and I, you know, I think I want to always be aware that. Um, I may be, you know, exposing myself unconsciously. I mean, not so much the conscious stuff, but do I uh, desensitize myself to violence? Uh, uh, I do think there's a problem at, with violence as entertainment, and when you combine violence and sexuality, I think that's a huge problem in our culture. But having said that, I mean, uh, the Book of Judges, for instance, uh, probably should have, you know, no one under 17 admitted uh, on it. So, uh, the idea that, um, the, the struggle for power, um, is a violent one. Um, you know, just because, you know, we're using drones, for instance, that doesn't mean people aren't dying. It does, you know, we, in some levels we depersonalize violence in the real world. And, um, I don't know, I think it can be constructed to be reminded that, um, how people die and, and the cost of violence. Yeah, I think, you know, the, what's interesting about Game of Thrones is that uh, you know, th there are not clear-cut heroes and villains. That, that everybody has their moments of, you know, surprising virtue and their moments of really, you know, glaring and, and sometimes debilitating vice. And the peop there's no clear... Uh, again, it, you have a tough time seeing somebody that's not at least to some degree ambiguous when you take their character as a whole, which, you know, an ambiguity that kind of oftentimes generates a feeling of ambivalence. You know, you're like, oh, right. should I like this person? Should I not? Or, or the person that you really are set up to not like, someone like Jamie Lannister, who, you know, through some real suffering – winds up being humanized in certain things and then seems to be able to, you know, become terrible again all the same, you know, <laughs> the same season. So, that I mean, I think that there's something that strikes me as true about that, that most people, are, most that all of us are, you know, ambiguous mixed bags. And I think that, like, it's funny because I think on some levels, Game of Thrones might, might propagate a more realistic anthropology than you get in most churches. No, I, I would agree with that. The other thing, too, is it constantly reminds you that vulnerable people are crushed. It, and that I, I think we try to put that out of our minds. It also, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, um, the horrible things that can happen, unintended consequences. I, I mean, in some levels, there's whole storylines in the Game of Thrones 
that could be a commentary on the, the disaster of our Middle Eastern policies. What we have done to, uh, in, in the name of good intentions to the people of Iraq, it spilled over into Syria, Afghanistan, uh, killing innocent people in Yemen, you know, in, pa- yeah, in uh, Pakistan. You know, you just go on over there. I mean, uh, what started out as to be a defense of all that's good and right and the protecting of the American people uh, not only has shattered uh, thousands of American lives, but it has destroyed millions of lives, uh, either literally or for the rest of their, you know, figuratively for the rest of their lives. And it has made the world a more dangerous place. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. There's a podcast I've gotten into called Imaginary Worlds and thinks about like why we, the imaginary worlds we construct and why we do it when it tells us about ourselves. They said that, you know, in times of, Scarcity, we have, we fantasize about worlds of abundance. They were talking about these medieval fantasies where, like, you know, there's chickens flying around already roasted and they just fly on your table. There's pigs walking around, but they're roasted already with forks in them. And you have these, like, but, you know, in a time of like excess and abundance, you, you kind of imagine worlds centered around scarcity. It's like Battlestar Galactica. Every episode starts with human life. How many human lives are left? And you know, so that, that basically, you find new ways to um, value things. And so, one of the things they were talking about is Game of Thrones. Is is this? Yeah, exactly what you're saying. Is this a commentary on the futility of the power game, the geopolitical, you know, both domestically and geopolitically? Like, is it, is all this sort of uh, politics is sort of competing egoisms and interests and global? relations that way. It's all just the commentary on the futility of that approach. And maybe so. Yeah. And I think Donald Trump in some level strips away, you know, kind of the naked ambition that is always behind, uh, any kind of aspiration to all, to office. I mean, I think Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton could be game of throne characters because they are people who are, uh, seeking power, who have created a place for themselves in the world. And, have at least uh, as many negative characteristics and qualities as they do positive. And the fact that they may be even more negatives and yet they still succeed. And it's funny, this yeah, <laughs> we shouldn't be surprised that these kind of things arise. And that's part of, I think, the Game of Thrones, as you see, yeah, deconstructs this notion that I do the right thing, there's these noble people, and 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 life and history progress in a positive way. Yeah, the other thing that's so interesting about is that like you have so many different approaches to things like magic and supernatural mysteries. Like there's people remember a time where there are things like dragons and white walkers and then people you know it's like in uh is it Prince Caspian in you know the Narnia chronicles like People just stop believing there ever were Narnians. Right. People, so there's this, you know, there are some people that are just total skeptics about that stuff, and then even think that the stories about it from you know millennia ago or whatever are are just fantastic mythical stories. And there's some people that uh, are superstitious, and then there are some people that seem somewhere in between. Right. That they have some belief that some of this stuff exists, but yet aren't really sure. 
how that it's at all domesticated or controllable, but that, you know, it does have some impact on the world, which I think is really interesting. Well, I think it, it does parallel a move in our own time where people just kind of gotten tired, exhausted by the, the varieties of, of, you know, religious experience, the, you know, the claims and counterclaims, um, and, you know, behind, you know, behind the curtain, you know, the idea that there might not be anything there, uh, I, I do think that kind of sin, the, the number of characters who are cynical, and what's really interesting is they'll even see things that challenge their cynicism, and they still don't necessarily change their worldview. And although we've had a few characters whose faith did not pull them through and have kind of, you see these kind of mini crises of faith. Yeah, and the most interesting thing, right, is the, recently is the, is the resuscitation of Jon Snow. Right. Which, yeah, yeah it's so interesting because they, you know, I was in season, is it season three? There's the band that have no banner and this priest who kind of lost his faith, but then all of a sudden pray, what, prayed he, the prayer over his friend who died and actually resuscitated him. It's done several times. Yeah, he's a whiskey priest. A great, yeah. yeah, a great uh, nod to uh, hope and the glory. Yeah, or yeah power, I'm not, Graham, I mean, power and the glory. Graham, uh, Graham Green, right? Yeah, Graham, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, but then, you know, the youngest Stark girl is saying, you know, could you bring back my father just from ahead? And, and, and the guy that's been resuscitated says, I wouldn't want to because you lose a bit of yourself. Yeah. So it's it's not resurrection in, in, this, in the traditional Judeo-Christian sense where you, where you rise to die no more in a sort of higher quality of embodied life. It's it's almost like you you lose part of yourself through the resuscitation right. and you're kind of less whole, but you're still, you're, you're moving closer to walking dead or something. It seems like one of the walking dead. Well, it's also interesting too, that there is not necessarily any hope for an afterlife, uh, but there's almost a kind of relief in death. There was an exchange between the resuscitated Jon Snow and one of the people who killed him right before, you know, the, the conspirators to be executed. And he says, I fought my last battle. You will fight on. And almost a sense of I'm done. This is, I'm glad this is over. And, um, and even I think when John says resuscitate, I have to rewatch it, but he goes, you know, why did you bring me back? Even yeah. though he had no consciousness of anything where he was. It's interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think uh, you had made an interesting observation at one point when we were talking about game of Thrones, that it's a great, kind of embodiment of the pagan worldview. Oh, yeah. And we kind of live in a neo-pagan worldview. So why don't you say more about that? Well, I just think that like it's tough for us to, even in, even in a secular age, an increasingly secular age, we are so shaped by the Judeo-Christian story and by things like Greco-Roman philosophy and the fusion of that, that kind of gives higher meaning to life and teleological, like there's a purpose and history's going somewhere. Even Marxism is kind of like a, 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 a materialized secular version of this kind of view that history's going somewhere and there's an end to it, something like the kingdom of God and, and somehow that the, the one creator's, you know, truths are, are mirrored in, in the created world. So it's, you know, imagine living when that's not, like, these yeah. echoes are not everywhere for that. And, yeah. and 
And you don't look at the world as an ordered place, but it's a place animated by fairies and sprites that are capricious and there's fate, which is sort of immoral or amoral. You know, and to to have a view of the universe like that, that's so um I think George Martin has created, you know, Camus said this, you know, author of Stranger. He said, I'm a pagan. I'm not, you know, like, right. and whether or not, you know, however much you can be that way. But like, I think Martin is, you know, he he's kind of a, he grew up Catholic. And I, I think my sense is he's not practicing anything right now. But he's created such an interesting pagan world. And right. one without a lot of uh, hope in the way we might think of it in a Judeo-Christian sense. And that, to me, is part of the artistry of the whole thing. Right. You can also give, you have kind of shades of what Christianity borrowed from paganism and incorporated into it. I mean, I've even think this, the one kind of fundamentalist group, uh, which they're fundamentalist pagan, but it but it purposely echoes a kind of either, you know, any, any, any kind of a, it could be a Islamic fundamentalist. It could be like a reforming order like the Dominicans. Or it could be, you know, one of the um, reforming Christian groups, that you know, Protestant groups. That it, are, that's what Martin said he was thinking. He was thinking of a kind of a Protestant, Protestant sort of, yeah. The like, Puritans. A, yeah, he was thinking of the medieval tension between the Protestants and Catholics. And he was thinking of playing that out in the religion of the seventh. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I do think that... Uh, you know, you, you pointed to it that Christianity and different Christian groups, I mean, we've kind of had fun looking at some of the, you know, little battles that still go on within, against, you know, the different sects of Christianity. And this need to say that we're biblical, we're right, this kind of triumphalism to me is still often coming from a deep insecurity that the whole the whole program may not be quite right. And I have to make sure at least my part of the, you know, you know, my, my ship will sail, you know, I'm my, my kind of Christianity will be the last ship standing. And I do think that often makes us overstate and overreach both theologically and intellectually. Yeah. I think that that's, yeah, I think that's always a danger and it, it doesn't change. The church is not an original sin-free zone, right? So you're just, I mean, we, we find that in all of institutional life, insecurity, and this institution's better than this. And yeah, I mean, it plays itself out. You know, the interesting thing too, I wonder if George Martin will be able to be thoroughgoingly consistent and that like, as creatures, right, we're, we're not infinitely imaginative, right? right? Like there, there are things that like, their horizons... Which is why, like, every fairy tale ends with a wedding, right? Like, you know, and they were happily ever after, or most of them, because there's this sense that history ought to end in a wedding feast. And you just, it, the, the creative tug, like, magnetically there is so strong. And I wonder, you just, you know, the Lord of Light has this prince of the fire that will, you know, grab the fire sword, who the priestess thinks is... Uh, uh, not Robert, it's Robert uh, Robert's brother... Meets an the Baratheon. Yeah, the Baratheon who meets an unfortunate end. But, you know, it's interesting that you have, I mean, there's one theory that that both that Tyrion and Jon Snow are both Targaryens. Hmm. Uh, and that that Ned Stark, I mean, that, I'm pretty sure that we know this or something, that Ned Stark's 
it was not his bastard child. It was his sister's child who was raped by a Targaryen or was slipless. So he lied to his wife and said it was to protect the child. Mm. Um, uh, So despite saying, hey, you know, this is not this Pollyannish kind of fantasy thing, like it does seem like there are messianic figures. They come from at least a couple of them. I mean, the Khaleesi, she, I mean, she looks more true. She comes from this mystical family. But Tyrion and Jon Snow, you know, all dwarves are bastards. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. So there's this sort of, the hope being in weakness. And yet, you know, through that weakness, something emerging that can overcome the biggest looming, you know, even supernatural evil that we fear. I mean, it's, I don't, I just don't know if he'll ultimately be able to escape at least something that looks more hopeful than Pagan's. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see that. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about just now in this conversation, what if if in this fantasy world that really in many ways is a great picture of, of the world, the at least the mythical world that Christianity arose in? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that what would it mean to have be this voice of hope and purpose without coercion? Um, in other words, there's a sense where the only power you have is the power of your message and the reflection of the hope in your changed life. Uh, and that you're willing to live a life of love uh, in, in the face of, of violence, hate, and uh, fatalism, it, it it would be. I mean, you know, uh, if there was a G Christ, you know, a Christ figure would get crucified in this world. Would get, you know, they would get killed some way horribly in in the Game of Thrones. Um, but if you if you believed that uh, the message and the love was bigger than the violence and the lack of hope. Um, is that a message you'd be willing to live for, willing to die for? I, I still think it's hilarious that so much energy in this day and age, uh, in Christian circles, well, we have a, how do we market ourselves? How do you know? I mean, what's often called missional is really marketing, and again, there is true missional stuff, but how it, it's less about how we can, um, you know, tr- offer the transformation of the resurrected Christ to people, as it is. All right, how can we kind of get some people in the door? How can we be cutting edge? Uh, how can we not be like what's come before us? And uh, what if we would just get back to the um, the uh, the naked, vulnerable message of Christ crucified? And I, I think it is a remarkably vulnerable message in the backdrop of all the forces uh, of violence and selfishness and fatalism and the way the weak are crushed in this world. Um it's it's a very courageous, almost. Uh, I mean, I love it. It's a romantic uh, notion. I can see why many people think it's a foolish notion. But um, what would that look like uh, in the world of the Game of Thrones? And what would it look like to recapture that vision in this kind of cynical uh, time that we live in? Yeah, I read a great book recently uh, called "Falling into Grace." Uh, the subtitle is. Uh, so looking at our inner life with God, and the author is John Newton, wonderful guy. And one of the things he says, he has a chapter on purpose, 
and kind of whole purpose uh, driven, not just the Rick Warren stuff, but in general, this whole, he said, he has this great quote, if we need big purpose, we're doomed to live small lives. <laughs> that's, uh, and then that's his last big. chapter is on resurrection and beautiful chapter on resurrection, beginning with his own, he's a hypo, his mission, he's a hypochondriac. And what does resurrection grace mean and fear of your own fragility? And he, it's funny, he concludes with the, the fact that the sign that resurrection grace has soaked in is nonviolence. And he said, because this, it's the opposite of control. Like Harawa says, you know, the resurrection means that we don't have to make uh, history come out right because right. it came out right, like, it, you know, in, in the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And I think that, yeah, that, but the hardest thing, I think, it's, it's Michael Jackson starts with the man in the mirror. It's like, ultimately, we want so much control over our own selves, our own story, the way people see us, the way we sort of self-curate, you know, our Instagrams and all this. So, yeah, I think that, like, if we could, if we were freed for the kind of vulnerability you're talking about, if we could stop so all the massive self-curating, uh, that, yeah, I mean, I think we could offer an alternative vision for what the good life looks like. Yeah. And I think the kingdom does, does come with, with violence and but that violence is a ripping apart of our own false images. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, I, and I have a lot of respect for traditional Anabaptists trying to live the life of Jesus, but, um, you know, unless you do take violence to the old self, then you're, passivity will become an aggressivity in some ways or the other because the self has to die so that it can be reborn. And that is often a very violent process. And uh, maybe the, the most important Game of Thrones is the one that happens within your soul. And Ollie had to die so that we could keep going going in season six. <laughs> 